Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. We're joined today by Jack Viertel, who has, I think, a very interesting uh, bio. Everything from playing national steel-bodied bottleneck guitar behind Bonnie Raitt and the Pointer Sisters to being the chief theatre critic and the arts editor of the Los Angeles Herald Examiner, having been the creative director of Jujamson Theatres, the big theater chain here in New York that puts on a lot of shows which you've seen since 1987, and also the artistic director of City Center Encores, which is why we've summoned Jack to our studios today. Welcome, Jack, to Don Stage Center. Thank you very much. I'm flattered to be summoned. <laughs> I think, you know, I, I have seen every production of Encores since it started in 1994 at City Center. You're one ahead of me. <laughs> <laughs> which is, you know, three productions a year for the past 11 seasons. You're now about to begin your 12th season. What is Encores for those who are not familiar with it? Encores uh, is a program of New York City Center that was created specifically to hear uh, musicals that uh, no commercial producer has taken a chance on old musicals uh, and at least to our way of thinking that no commercial producer would be likely to take a chance on those shows that have in most cases wonderful scores but for one reason or another – uh, have been have fallen into neglect. They're not hip enough. They have had internal problems that made them not successful their first time out uh, or for any other of a number of reasons. Uh, and the mission was to hear them as close to the way they sounded on their opening night, whether that opening night was in 1927 or 57 or 77, um, as possible. That includes the original orchestrations uh, that were you know, created by orchestrators and approved by the composers, original vocal arrangements, uh, as much of the feel of what that original show was as possible. We do trim the books somewhat, although we don't try to fix them if they're broken. Uh, and we do present them with actors with book in hand um, and limited choreography, limited costume design, very little uh, set design, just a kind of scenic concept. Uh, but the main mission is to hear them. And them being shows ranging from The New Moon, which is an old Sigmund Romberg score from way back in the 20s, right through Hair, for example, in between Bye Bye Birdie and uh, some of the classics uh, by Rodgers and Hart, like Babes in Arms, shows of that nature. Right. I mean, we're really looking at the golden age of Broadway from uh, right around the time that it began, and The New Moon is probably the most uh, old-fashioned type of show we've done, although I don't think it's quite the earliest chronologically. We did A Connecticut Yankee, which was in, uh, from 1925, um, uh, right up through things like Hair and Chicago and uh, you know shows that, that people remember. I keep saying that when we get around to doing an encore of a show that I produced the original version of, I'm going to retire, but we haven't quite gotten there yet. I, I think we should also um, emphasize that there are only five, sometimes six performances of these shows. Right. And then they vanish forever in most cases, but not all. Uh, not all. Not not at least two <laughs> cases that I can <laughs> Which think Which we'll of. get to Chicago, a wonderful right. town. We'll get to that. But it's worth noting uh, for our listeners around the country that Encores was really the progenitor of this idea of concert versions of classic musicals because people in Los Angeles now know of the Reprise series and I know there's a series down at the Kennedy Center and I believe there's one out in Chicago. So you've really engendered uh, – you and, and the prior artistic directors have engendered looking back at this material and it's it's not franchised but it's, it's certainly been duplicated. Yes. I, I think that um, without even realizing why we wanted to do it, one of the things that we've discovered by doing it was that uh, this golden age was a discrete time. It began and it ended and we're not in it anymore. 
for however exciting some of what's being done on Broadway is now. And in that respect, it's very much like other kinds of concert music or, or classical music or opera in that it's a repertoire that you can look at and listen to and have a feeling about. Um, and once we started doing it, it caught on in a remarkable way and, uh, and in various different kinds of uh, incarnations. has existed all around the country for quite a few years now, you know, seven or eight years. We've been doing it for 12. Uh, and that includes not just the companies you mentioned but also the Hollywood Bowl now does a musical every year in sort of in a concert style. Um, they've been doing them in England since actually a little before we were doing them. But uh, they, that has uh, begun to happen more and more often. This music is music that, uh, that people really want to hear and they understand that the shows themselves up until a certain point were really vehicles for the music. Well, but when you talk about shows that would not be likely to be commercially produced and you talk about a golden age, the the, the aperture has widened as, as Encores has gone along fairly quickly, Chicago being a show from the 70s, Bye Bye Birdie from the 60s and already had a different feel in some cases than those classic musicals when you talk about a pal Joey or a Babes in Arms. How do you – make the decision of what is really an encore show or do you have to make decisions based on what you think actually might get commercially produced? We actually never make decisions based on what we think might get commercially produced. We Not don't, necessarily from yours right. but just what might be out oh, there in the ethos. That, that I see what you're saying. Um, you know, we take our cue in terms of commercial production more from what has been commercially produced. I mean we've certainly received a certain amount of mail asking us why we were doing Bye Bye Birdie, why we were doing the pajama game, shows that people feel they're familiar with uh, in the same season where we might be doing a show like the Gershwin's Pardon My English, which nobody is familiar with. Uh, and the answer is we looked around and realized that there had not been a first-class production of Bye Bye Birdie in New York since 1960, which is when the original production was done. Uh, and as familiar as we all think we are with that show and I would venture to say most people who are interested in musical theater have seen it in one incarnation or another, to hear it with its original orchestrations performed the way it was originally performed nonetheless stood a chance of being a kind of revelation and at least from an orchestral point of view, I think it was a revelation to a lot of people although I don't think that's why the average audience member comes to hear the orchestrations. Um, it was an extremely lively, wonderfully put together show, the original show, and I think we did a, we did a good job of reproducing it. But um, there are quite a few of these shows that people think they know that we feel well, they kind of know them, but they don't really know them the way we can deliver them. They tend to know the movie, perhaps. Right, they know the movie, or they've seen it in their community theater, or they've been in it in high school. Uh, and they think that's the show. Well, the show, of course, musical theater is such a funny thing because it's not just the material on a piece of paper. It's the excitement that happens when that material is delivered at a certain level. Just a little anecdote on, on, on that. A couple of years ago, you did Tenderloin. And there's a song in Tenderloin that if you look through the, the program ahead of time, you saw that one of the songs was Artificial Flowers. Right. I think most people in the audience, myself included, knew Artificial Flowers from the Bobby Darren kind of swinging version of that song back in the late 50s, 1960, whenever that was. When the fellow who sang it, I don't recall it was who it was, Wilson. In, in the show, sang it kind of as an Irish tenor in a very slow kind of romantic ballad fashion. There was an audible gasp in the audience when they realized, oh my God, that's the way that it should be sung as it was sung in the original Tenderloin. Right. It's purely a parody of an old Irish tenor, you know, right. barroom ballad yeah. uh, that Sheldon Harnick and Jerry Bach wrote specifically to 
poke a little bit of fun at that type of song. And Bobby Darren had a big hit with it. Sure. But in those days, of course, you know, pop singers had big. Uh, Louis Armstrong had a big hit with "Hello Dolly." Didn't sound anything and, like Carol Channing. And Darren with "Max and Knife." Yeah. And as people were leaving the theater that night, they were literally talking about that song. <laughs> Can you believe the way they sang that? Wow, wasn't that great? You know, as well, opposed to what they were accustomed to. Well, those kinds of surprises we kind of live for. I have to yeah. say, it was a great moment. Now, when you go to do these shows, in many cases, you're dealing with shows where the authors themselves are have left us already. And so you're dealing with estates. What is the reaction as you go out and and look to do this material? Are people welcoming this opportunity? Do you have trouble sometimes with the estates who want to guard exactly how things are done? What's the... Generally speaking, estates have been very enthusiastic and understand that uh, five performances at Encores is not a get-rich-quick scheme for the estate or anyone else. We really all do it for love of what it is. And we've rarely run into situations where there's where there are difficulties with the estates, largely I think because our mission and our intentions are so completely tied up with the idea of honoring the original work. I think estates tend to get much more wary when a commercial producer comes along and says, you know, I'd love to do South Pacific but I really think it should be a rock and roll musical or it should be all set on a, in an insane asylum or whatever. Um, when they hear you want to do the show with 30 instruments in the band and 30 singers on stage and do it the way that the authors intended to do it, generally speaking, they've been quite supportive of that. Now, the original intention of encores was to stage these three revivals each season basically as, as, a, as a concert version with the libretto and all the music restored as best as possible to the original with the men in tuxedos, the women in evening gowns, holding notebooks in their hands, reading and singing from those books, very limited set and very limited props. In fact, the orchestra has been on stage for every production. It seems to have grown quite a bit over the 11 seasons where now the staging is much more elaborate, some wonderful dancing goes on, costumes have become more involved, not just the tuxedos and the evening gowns anymore. That has really grown and you've attracted some big, big names to, to headline these shows. People like Nathan Lane, Patti Lapone, Kristen Chenoweth comes to mind, Brian Stokes Mitchell, Vanessa Williams, Lynn Redgrave, Robert Morris. I'm reading, obviously. Uh, Donna Murphy, Martin Short, Tyne Daly. How do you attract these people and how do you get their cooperation to be in a very limited run show? Well, I think for a lot of stars... This is actually a wonderful opportunity. They see it as a wonderful opportunity. From first rehearsal to last performance is two weeks. Um, There's no real money in it but uh, it's an opportunity to play a terrific role, to sing some terrific songs in front of, I must say, an adoring audience uh, and to have a lot of fun and a bit of a roller coaster ride in terms of rehearsal schedules and everything. But um, they have been – eager to participate as a kind of busman's holiday. I mean I've, I've uh, rarely had anyone who's a theater star uh, say, oh, I just am not interested in encores. I'd much rather do a longer run. The idea of doing a short run is is very appealing and you know allows them to sort of work out their muscles and, uh, and, and take a ride. And it's a very different process from the process they would go through on a Broadway show, which would be probably a five-week rehearsal period and two weeks of technical rehearsals in the theater and I'm four weeks of previews and finally an opening night and then a run of six to nine months to a year depending on how long – as a Broadway producer, I'm always concerned with how long you can keep the star in the show. Um, this is uh, sort of a first instinct party that they come to and by and large, they've had a wonderful time doing it. I, I think without exception, they seem to have had a wonderful time doing it. And I think also that they don't have to actually memorize the lines probably makes it a little bit easier. They can 
it's if better necessary. if they don't. I mean, as, <laughs> as 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 many of them have said to me, the the idea of having the book in the hand is is intimidating at the beginning because they feel like they're professionals and they should know their lines. But once they relax and realize that the audience forgets about the book and the book explains that it's to the audience visually that it's not a production, that no one is giving a polished performance that they've had six weeks to work on. Um, they feel much looser and more comfortable and relaxed, and uh, you know they they just go for the ride. So from the time they first walk in for rehearsal till the final curtain is two weeks. Two weeks, and they have what nine days rehearsal? I, yes, I guess it's in? nine days technically. Yeah, the la- the ninth day is uh, is two dress rehearsals, but yeah. Uh-huh. So you're working on a schedule that almost approximates old-time summer stock. It's and stock with the A-team. Yeah, exactly, with, an, with extraordinary people working on it. What What is the process in terms of working on the show? Because you spoke of um, – you spoke of that the books may be revised. You're looking to use in many cases original orchestrations. Some cases you don't even know where those orchestrations are. Can you take us through kind of the model of, of putting together an encore show? Well, in preparing a show prior to the company arriving for rehearsal, we do need to get the musical materials and the script together in one place in a way where we know that with very limited rehearsal, we'll be able to to do it. Generally speaking, we use original orchestrations. Sometimes when we take those out of the box, there are missing pieces. Um, As a current example, we're doing uh, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn this in in a few weeks actually and uh, when we took – when we, we finally discovered the various boxes of orchestrations that were stored away in a warehouse, uh, the viola parts were all missing. So we had to recopy those parts out of a full score. Um, but before – about four weeks before we begin, we have an orchestra rehearsal to make sure that everything is there and that it all matches and that all the parts are in the same keys for everybody and that kind of thing. And a lot of this comes from just the carelessness with which these materials tend to be cared for. Um, once we've done that, assuming that the orchestrations exist and if they don't exist, in a couple of cases, we've actually had to reorchestrate shows from scratch but only – we do that sort of as a last resort um, and always try to do it in the style of the original. Uh, when we bring the company together, they, have, they are given an adapted script which is really, as I said, just cut. We're, it's, it's never been our intention to try to make a show work differently than it originally worked. But with a 30-piece band sitting on stage, you can't have – 10 and 20 page scenes of people just talking to each other. So the idea is to tell the story as swiftly and effectively as possible. Um, At the end of the first day, we've done a read through of the whole script and begun to learn the music. Uh, By the end of the third day, act one is usually staged. On the fourth and fifth day, act two is usually staged and we've done a run through of the whole show uh, or work through of the whole show. You sound very biblical and on the first day. (laughs) (laughs) It's sort of biblical in its drama anyway. The uh, the Saturday of the first week, we have uh, our one and only opportunity for the band and the company to get together, uh, usually over at Carol Music on West 55th Street, where they sing with the orchestra for the first time. And then they all go home and collapse. Sunday's a day off. Monday, we're in the theater for the first time and – With or without the band? With no band, mm-hmm. no nothing, no mm-hmm. props, no lights, no anything, just actors to be able to work through the show on the stage for the first time. But the uh, platforms that the and band the, is on. And by then, the platforms are- that are all – and scenery that has all been uh, designed by John Lee Beatty from the very first show uh, is in place and they can finally – 
go up and down stairs and do whatever they have to do. Which is quite a bit of going up and down stairs in a typical production. Right. I mean the, the, the nature of these shows is that the band is in the back, is the upstage and then there are platforms and then there's a floor level and John Lee is unbelievably inventive in terms of uh, – finding new and different way, variations on the theme of what encores is supposed to look like. Other than the golden arch proscenium, which looks like a picture frame, which has been there from the first show, um, the inside of the arch is always done differently. Um, and given how shallow the stage is and the fact that nothing on it really moves uh, other than the occasional backdrop, it's a, an amazing challenge to keep making it look fresh and different. Uh, and for those who have not seen the show – Many, if not all, of the entrances and exits are made through the band, through the orchestra. Right, and the, and the, and the arrangement of the orchestra changes from show right. to show as well. Frequently. And, fr and frequently, the conductor is involved as an actor, so to speak, when they hand him things or he hands things to the actors. We we try to do that at least once a show. <laughs> <laughs> um, in any case, on Tuesday we do our one and only technical rehearsal, which adds in lights and excuse me, we do it with full sound. On Wednesday we add in the clothes and we do a. a dress rehearsal in the afternoon and then we do an invited dress rehearsal in the evening which about 1,500 people I guess attend. A lot of them are part of a program called Encores in Schools. A lot of them are funders and other folks who for one reason or another um, get invited and a lot of them are friends of the company. Um, and then Thursday we open and Sunday we close. You know, I've been seeing the show on Thursdays and it looks so polished like it's been going forever. It's amazing when I hear you talk about how limited – it's only their really second or third time doing much of the action. It, it's amazing how it all comes together. It's usually the third time. Yeah, we, well, it's I think always the third time. We do the stress rehearsal for ourselves on Wednesday afternoon, which is always kind of scary. Mm -hmm. um, and then in front of an audience, this invited audience on Wednesday night – Everybody pulls together and we always say at the beginning, I always come out and make a nice little announcement saying it's a rehearsal and if we have to stop, we'll stop and mm -hmm. if anything falls, we'll pick it up. Um, so far, we've been fortunate. You've uh, been able to get straight through. We've been able to get straight through. We've had some near misses but uh, <laughs> we've been able to get straight through. And there is something about putting a company of actors as accomplished as these actors who are the most wonderful kind of you know, New York Broadway company in front of 1,500 people who are ready to love them. And uh, it just comes alive. And by Thursday, it seems like a show. I said I, I say I've been seeing it on Thursday. I should just interject at this point. It is literally impossible to change your tickets from one day to another or one seat to another. In the 11 seasons I've been seeing the show, I've been seeing it for the first about seven or eight seasons in the same two seats. And then my wife and I were able to move over two seats onto the aisle because the couple next to us told us once, oh, we're moving to Las Vegas. If you want to move over to our seats, why don't you ask for them, which we did. We moved over. But other than that, you have a very high renewal rate, 90-some-odd percent renewal About for subscriptions. Yeah, yeah 90, 90 which? Six, I 96, think. which is, I guess, unheard of. It's been really remarkable. Now, granted, so that I just don't go around tooting my horn too loud, there are five performances. It's not like we're doing this for eight months or anything. Right. Um, so the number of seats available is very limited. But it's, it's, it's over 2,000 per performance, it's, isn't it? It's, it's, yes, it's a, it's a very big theater. It's a 2,700-seat mm -hmm. theater. Uh, and there are seats available for every performance at least initially because the rear of the mezzanine and the, and the balcony, which is a second balcony, um, has you know, reasonably priced seats and some of those seats are fine. Some of them and the very rear are not so fine. Um, but uh, uh, under certain circumstances, when a show takes off, 
It's quite amazing to watch. Sometimes even before reviews come out, you will just – those seats will start to fly out the door with a show like Hair or when Patti LuPone did Can Can and they're gone and you're completely sold clean to the walls, which is very exciting for us, I must say. We don't depend on it and we know that with a show like Pardon My English, which was an absolutely wonderful show that got terrific reviews, we were never going to sell a receipt. Um, but sometimes the right combination of the right star and the right show, it will just go. To move from the general to the specific, you're opening your season in three weeks with The Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Now, Tree Grows in Brooklyn is one of those shows that everybody agrees had a fantastic score and a hugely problematic book. A couple of seasons back, Goodspeed Opera House revived Tree Grows in Brooklyn with a revised book. Does that play into your planning? Are you utilizing that material? Have you gone back to the original? Uh, how, how is that playing into this production? Um, we have gone back to the original and adapted it by cutting it as usual. I must say that the the estates in this case were have been tremendously cooperative in understanding the situation we were in. Um, the revised version of A Tree Grows in Brooklyn was done at the Goodspeed Opera House a year or two ago. It was quite acclaimed and uh, you know considered a, a, a significant uh, um, step forward for the show. Uh, and we initially hoped that we could do that version of the show. Uh, which we had a lot of respect for and a lot of admiration for. Unfortunately, the way the score was used in that production moved uh, so many um, numbers around in terms of who sang them and where they fell in the in the show that we could never have used the original orchestrations, which were all in different keys and songs written for men were sung by women and um, – Eventually, uh, in a collaborative uh, uh, conversation that went on for quite a long time with the various estates, we decided we would do the original version uh, kind of warts and all, although you know, it's very moving. The, the, the Both versions are and uh, uh, it's a show that uh, underwent I think a lot of um, revision on the road uh, and came, may have come to New York with certain parts of it kind of unfinished. Uh, it did have a you know, better than modest run. I think it ran 270 some performances, but sort of got left by the wayside. Uh, it's interesting that um, when we did the orchestra playthrough, the orchestrator for the show, the listed orchestrators for the show, are Robert Russell Bennett and a man named Joe Glover, who I frankly had never seen credited on a show before, but who's a well-known ghost writing orchestrator. And as we were looking over the orchestrations and working with uh, um, Stephen Suskin, who's a theater historian who knows a lot about this, it became clear that uh, Robert Russell Bennett, who was the dean of Broadway orchestrators, had written about five charts for this show and was then called to Boston by Richard Rogers to work on The King and I, which was trying out at the same time. And uh, actually did a couple of Tree Grows in Brooklyn orchestrations from Boston and sent them down because we have a record of what he what days he did which orchestrations on. Um, and I think to some degree The King and I was such an enormous triumph uh, that A Tree Grows in Brooklyn got left behind a little bit. I was surprised frankly when I confronted it, both the original version and the adapted version that was done at Goodspeed, that it's, that it's quite a moving show and, and, and quite a good show. Well, originally – as I understand it, this is 1951, as I recall. George Abbott wrote the book, and the focus was to have been on a couple in the show, male and female lead, and Shirley Booth was cast, and the show was, I guess, re-engineered to focus more on her talents and give her more of an opportunity in the show, so that it had changed by the time it got to Broadway back then. If I'm, I think that's correct. I, I don't have the chronology completely clear. Oh. I don't know whether the whether the 
gradual shift of focus toward Shirley Booth's character, who is a supporting character in the story, right. not the central character, uh, happened after they cast her and before they went out of town or while they were out of town? I think probably a little of both, but I don't have clear information about that. Um, there's no question that the balance in the show uh, shifts, be- shifts between the main couple about whom the story is – and their daughter about whom the story is ostensibly written and this second couple, which is a comedy couple. Shirley Booth was the much more important of the two characters. Um, I can understand exactly why Mr. Abbott would have thought, well, I have my star and she's winning over the audience and that's just the way it has to be. It did unbalance the show I think in ways that now that we're able to cast it sort of in a more ensemble-like way, I think will not seem nearly so uh, out of balance. Will it still have the focus though on the character that Shirley Booth played? Not so much, I don't think. It's interesting. One of the things that happened with the original show is that not only was Shirley Booth a star, a real star, I think she had just won the Tony the year before, um, but the other casting, the casting of the other two leading roles was very um, underwhelming, frankly. Uh, uh, And I think that by casting it even-handedly, you see that actually the writing with relatively little manipulation um, is more even-handed than one might think. Now, you mentioned Steve Suskin doing some research. You, of course, have your own background in dramaturgy. How do you do the research on these shows? Where are you finding the information? Where are you finding the material? You look everywhere. Um, most of the shows, the musical materials are are at least in some form or other with a, rent, with a rental house that rents – that leases them for stock and amateur productions. Even some of these shows that are rarely, rarely done – are nonetheless available from a stockhouse if you want to rent them. Um, our problems begin when we get the materials and see what kind of shape they're in. In terms of the history of the show, one of the things we have a we have a wonderful advisory committee at Encores that actually predates the creation of Encores. It was the committee that sort of decided what Encores would be, uh, and it includes Robert Kimball, who's a theater historian who's been enormously helpful. Um, and uh, Ted Chapin is the chair of it. He's the head of the Rodgers and Hammerstein organization. They also represent the Irving Berlin estate and a number of shows independently. He is, uh, has people on his staff who are tremendously helpful. The various stock and amateur houses usually have a music authority or music librarian. Some of those people are tremendously helpful. Um, the Library of Congress has stores of material. And one of the really wonderful things about working at Encores as opposed to simply sitting and watching them is this ability to play archaeologist basically and uncover these things. I remember with uh, with Pardon My English, which is a show for some reason I keep coming back to, someone uncovered a piece of dance music that had been cut from the show. This is a 1931, 32 show that ran about a month and a half um, that had been found on the floor of a closet uh, in Kay Swift's apartment after she died. Kay Swift was a collaborator of George Gershwin's and I think a girlfriend of George Gershwin's. Um, and here were all these parts in a box on K-Swift's floor. Well, we took them out and we played them, you know, and we used them in the entr'acte. Uh, and they were d- absolutely delightful, funny, almost cartoon-like orchestration um, that no one had ever heard before. Uh, and just discovering these things, putting them up on the stands and playing through them uh, can be, a, you know, just a delightful experience. And we sort of never stop looking. Mm-hmm. So in the case of A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, which had been revived at good speed a little bit more than a year before, I guess a couple of questions. Why did you decide to do that when it was so recently revived at good speed and then the book had been rewritten for good speed by Eleanor Renfeld 
Ben Field, I think it is. Uh, why did you choose not to ultimately use the rewrite version? Because that was your original intention, I think. Our original was intention to do, was to yeah. use it. We simply couldn't make it work with the musical materials that we had. Um, even though it received very good reviews and probably was a stronger book. E- even though it received very good reviews and uh, um, probably was certainly in some respects a stronger book. Um, we, we just simply couldn't fit the two things. When we tried to fit the two things together – we realized that the only way to really fit them together would be to eviscerate the book that Eleanor had written, which we certainly didn't want to do. We had a lot of respect for it and for the choices she had made. I think we would have succeeded in making her look bad uh, and making the show look worse than either her version or the original version uh, deserves. So by going back to the original version, we're able to preserve a good deal of what's wonderful about the show. And then were you, were you able to use any of the materials that had been unearthed for that revival in staging your revival? In other words, they – I'm sure I've gone back to the original source materials in 51. The estate must have had that material. I frankly don't think we did but the, all the materials that we received were, were sort of put together and we did what we could do. Um, mostly the show was all in one place except for these missing viola parts. Mostly the show was all in one place uh, and we were actually able to, to get the – what we don't have that they did have and that they did make some use of I think. Are materials that were not in the original show, but that were created for the original show, but never used. Uh, so, uh, have you restored? Them? And we haven't restored those. Have we really tried to do what they did on opening night on Broadway, oh, musically. Musically. Uh-huh. We've talked now a lot about Tree Grows in Brooklyn. The rest of the season coming up later, you have Pearly, and you've got uh, the Apple Tree. Tell us about choosing those and and the challenges of those pieces. Well, um, Pearly is a show that I think a lot of people or some – many people feel that they've seen in one form or another but that hasn't been seen in a first-class uh, Broadway-style version and probably since its original incarnation, uh, which was in 1969, 70, I sounds, think. Sounds right. Um, it's a show I've never seen, strangely enough, even though I was going to the theater in those days. I did see the original play on which it was based, uh, Ossie Davis's Pearly Victorious, and I've known the score because of the original cast album all of my adult life. And always thought that it was a fascinating um, show of a particular era. You know, the original play was done prior. This is a play about uh, essentially about a, a, a black pre- preacher who is a bit of a scallywag in some ways, but who is really a freedom fighter in his heart, uh, living in the Jim Crow South and overcoming various uh, um, kinds of racist Jim Crow circumstances that the people in his community are living in. Um, it was originally done as a play I think right before the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964, probably in 61, I think, um, in one atmosphere. And then the musical was done in the late 60s at the height of the kind of uh, protest movement over Vietnam, which had employed a lot of the same people who had been civil rights protesters in the early 60s and mid-60s in a very different atmosphere, a much angrier atmosphere and a much more uh, – uh, contentious atmosphere um, and some of the kind of charm of the original play uh, be, had begun to seem a little bit – condescending is probably the wrong word but a little bit more difficult to deal with and and the musical had taken steps to deal with that situation and now here we find ourselves in 2005 looking back really on uh, two different eras, the late 60s and the early 60s 
and I was just fascinated by sort of the anthropology of the show. What was the audience for the show? What did that audience believe about race relations? What did they believe about uh, uh, black people who were on the stage? Um, the fact that it was written by black people and that it was uh, essentially created from within rather than some Broadway shows that have been created by white people using black entertainers, which is a whole different series of challenges, um, was really interesting to me. And the score is amazingly uh, effervescent. It just it just is a terrifically um, simple in some ways but very, very uh, attractive score and it really you know, sets your feet tapping and all of that. And it certainly in its day ran 688 performances, was a success and then that same team followed up Pearly with a show probably even better known which was Shenandoah. Right, which, which was a, absolutely an anti-war musical that grew out of the Vietnam, uh, you know, using the Civil War as a metaphor basically. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a very in, politically engaged team. Um, the original Pearly was, as I said, written by black people. The musical was written by white people who were honoring the original play. Um, they, I think, had less difficulty in 1969 than a, than a white author might have today, right, trying to write the same material. But the undercurrent of protest and the tremendous feeling of joy that the show creates – uh, just fascinated me. It fascinated me as a rare combination and I thought it was time for people to experience it again. And so The Apple Tree? The Apple Tree is a show I saw trying out when I was a college student with Barbara Harris. And the thing about The Apple Tree, The Apple Tree is a, a unique musical in that it's three one-act plays, one-act stories that have been adapted into three one-act musicals that are utterly unrelated to each other except by theme. They're all about temptation. Um, hence the apple tree. Uh, the first one is about Adam and Eve. And um, it. what I remembered about it, frankly, was Barbara Harris, who was a tremendous presence briefly in the, in the Broadway world. She really starred in two shows that were in a sense vehicles for her on A Clear Day You Can See Forever and The Apple Tree. And I have always thought that if you had the right person to play this role, which essentially was crafted for Barbara Harris by the authors and Mike Nichols, who was the director, was the first musical he directed and up until right now the only musical he actually directed, um, we should do it. And if we couldn't, we shouldn't. And uh, I sent the material to Kristen Chenoweth because I love her and she got her started encores doing a supporting role in Strike Up the Band years ago and she just absolutely leapt at it. I would say within uh, about 18 hours she called to say, I'm doing this show mm-hmm. and I thought, well, that's it. Then that's what we're doing. And she's the only person you really have announced so she's far. She's the only person we've yeah, cast yeah, so far. Because yeah. yeah. typically you don't announce the people in the show until a week or two before. Usually there's an ad in the Sunday Times right. who's going to be and that's how we, the audience, know – who we're going to be seeing when we go to see the show. And and these circumstances just happen to be that we wouldn't do this show without the right person yeah. in it. And since we knew, we figured we'd tell everybody. You know what's really amazing from an audience point of view? The fact that we plunk down hundreds of dollars each year, almost a year in advance, to renew our seats, having no idea what the shows are going to be, having no idea who's going to be in them, just really taking it on faith that City Center will do a great job as they've been doing for 11 years. It's extraordinarily flattering and it's also a great uh, piece of pressure for us. <laughs> we want to take an opportunity to play a track off of one of the recordings uh, of, of an encore show. But I want to ask you a question beforehand. In the very earliest days of encores, there were a series of recordings of the show. And more recently, there haven't been many recordings. What's at play there? Well, um, 
it's – I'm afraid not that interesting. I wish it were more interesting and it's now been solved. So perhaps there will be uh, – there will be more recordings in, in the future. Um, in its earliest years, Encores was under – not under the jurisdiction of Actors' Equity. It was under the jurisdiction of, uh, of uh, AGMA, AGMA, right, uh, which, is, which, is, which is a union that covers concert-type performances. Mm-hmm. Um, at a certain point, largely because of what you were describing earlier, that the shows had gotten fancier and fancier, uh, now suddenly there were some costumes, there was some choreography, there were, uh, equity stepped in and said, you know, we really should be – we really should have jurisdiction over these shows. So it, be- it became a show rather right, than a concert. Rather than a concert, at least from a union point of view. Mm-hmm. And we agreed with them. We said, you know, you're right. These, these are not really – these are not really AGMA-type concerts. These are really equity-type shows or closer to. Um, Equity's rules governing the recording of original cast albums are radically different or they, they have rules whereas AGMA, of course, doesn't because they don't do shows. So it isn't an original cast recording. It's just a recording. Um, and it made the recordings frankly unaffordable. Uh, we, we couldn't raise the money to do them because the, uh, the costs just escalated dramatically. Um, in this most re- and, and Equity was aware of this problem and trying to be cooperative about it and in this most recent um, contract that we've negotiated with them, uh, they have agreed because of the nature of what we do to allow us to go back to using essentially an AGMA type um, – um, scale for what these recordings are. The recordings, you know, I think our recordings are wonderful, and uh, I'm very proud of them. And they don't sell a lot of copies. And like everything else about encores, we do them for love, and no one gets rich off of them. And so, I think Equity, looking at the re- the true sales figures of what these records do, decided that there were, there was simply nothing comparable about this experience to making an original cast album of the producers or Wicked, you know, mm-hmm. where there's it the becomes new moon a promotion. Doesn't have it the be- same market. Well, not the same cachet. <laughs> well, in addition to cachet, the 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 cast album of a show is an important promotional tool for a ten or fifteen million dollar enterprise, which is an ongoing, which is show. an ongoing right. show and an ongoing enterprise. Um, you know, encores. By the time the record comes out, the show has been dead for a year. You know, it's a it's a fond yeah. memory. And some of those CDs are absolutely brilliant. Babes in Arms, wonderful. They're wonderful. And out also, of this world. It's an opportunity time, time to record stuff Manum. that you know just wasn't recorded in its own time, right, right. which or is not one recorded of the, completely. Or not recorded cases. completely, which right. is one of the reasons I was so anxious to do the New Moon. The New Moon dates from 1928, uh, long before the original cast album had been institutionalized in any way. And because those orchestrations had been preserved and because the show was beautifully sung, uh, it just seemed like a shame. There's never been a full recording of The New Moon, unlike a show like Pal Joey, which has many different recordings you could choose from. Well, Howard subtly indicated that we would play a song from The New Moon, which occurred during your watch as artistic director. This is, Bill, the City Center Encore's premiere recording of The New Moon. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the show, about the, about the CD, how that came to be, and then pick a song from it, and we'll be glad to play it for you. Well, The New Moon, uh, as you said earlier, is an operetta by Sigmund Romberg and Oscar Hammerstein II. Um, and I must say, when Rob Fisher, who is the music director of Encore, said to me, it's time to do an operetta. I said to him, I hate operetta. <laughs> and he said, really, what operettas do you know? And I realized that I didn't know any operettas, uh, that my prejudice about operettas basically came from the name operetta. Uh, it sounded like a little opera. And I thought, gee, you know, if we've, an opera is a grand thing and a show is a grand thing. An operetta sounds like a toy of some kind. So he said, well, sit down and listen to some of them and you know, pay attention, do your homework. Mm-hmm. And so we began to sit down and play through them and listen to them and they really are – spectacularly beautiful musically and fascinating as antique musicals. This was the form that dominated 
musical theater in the first two decades or two and a half decades of, of the century. Up until basically Rodgers and Hart came right. along and Jerome Kern and those others. And what fascinated me particularly about The New Moon was it's written by Oscar Hammerstein. And if you look at it, the operettas of this period were are characterized by sort of nutty swashbuckling plots and pirates and uh, you know damsels in distress and in some cases – uh, you know, tribes of Indians and Canadian Mounties and things. And they're really quite silly on one level. On another level, reading through The New Moon, which is about um, um, the beginnings of the French Revolution as it was celebrated by a bunch of freedom fighters who were living in, a, in the French colony then of New Orleans, um, that it really is a is an immediate ancestor of Oklahoma, although it's much sillier as a story if you look at the way the characters are lined up and who they are and what they want and the show is about essentially statehood, about freedom, um, it's Oscar Hammerstein at an early stage of his career writing about something that obviously meant an enormous amount to him and that he continued to write up about for his entire career. Um, so I, I was captivated by that and I was captivated by the score which is just absolutely gorgeous and by the fact that Rob was right. It was time to do one. We had never heard this sound at Encores which is – a very violin-oriented sound. It's a very um, lush period, not particularly loud sound, although Stout-Hearted Men, which is from The New Moon, is one of your louder male chorus songs ever written. Um, and when we did the show itself, I was just completely delighted by how the audience leapt to it. I mean they were so eager to have it. They were so hungry for it. They didn't – they came into the theater not even knowing that they were eager to have it. I think a fair number of them probably came in the way I would have come in thinking, why are they making me sit through this? <laughs> Within about 10 minutes, they were all completely on board and it was a wonderful experience. It's some beautiful music. Why don't you pick one song we'll play? Let's hear um, Lover Come Back to Me, which is a song that uh, – has been recorded by so many people over the years and actually I know a Dizzy Gillespie recording of it. So there's it's, – it's a tune that has stood the test of time and it's a great tune and uh, Christiane Knoll sang it for us. From the New Moon, one of the Encore's uh, presentations, Christiane Knoll and Lover Come Back. A couple of years ago, I remember sitting in the audience at Encore's and it was the first and only time that I recall, I think it was most likely on your watch, they handed out a flyer to say to us, the audience, choose what you'd like to hear in the future, songs, uh, shows rather, you would like to see us uh, produce here. I think I put down uh, Cole Porter's show, uh, uh, Gay Divorce, uh, which was from the 30s. Good choice. Yeah. And hasn't been produced yet, so we should well, talk about that. It was out of my list. Uh, was, was, that, was that during your, your that watch? That was at the end of my first season there. I yeah. just thought it was time. This audience has been so loyal and so engaged and they're so sophisticated musically and theatrically. I thought it was time to sort of find out what what was on their minds. Mm -hmm. And I must say the results were shocking because we gave them a list of you and them, a list of about 60 or 50 or 60 shows to choose from. Not only did every show get at least one vote, but we had an additional I think 90 write-in votes for different mm – -hmm. 90 different titles. We had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of write-in votes. Um, and we had a response rate of about 60 percent I think which is unheard of. This is an audience that really is uh, fanatical. And we've done quite a few of the shows that they that they listed. What are your criteria for choosing the three shows each year you can you can revive? Well, we want the shows to match well together in the sense that none of them should be anything like any of the others. Um, 
in an ideal world, the easy way to do that is to say, well, we'll do one from the 20s, one from the 50s and one from the 70s or whatever. But we've also done seasons where all three shows open within a couple of years of each other but were so different temperamentally that uh, it didn't seem to be a problem. Um, we tr try to look first at scores that we think are wonderful and it's always nice if the show is also wonderful. And there does come a point where the show is so not wonderful that we've actually had to disqualify a few things that we might otherwise have done. And we would like one to be a party. Kathleen Marshall, who was my predecessor's artistic director, said there has to be one that's a party and I think she's completely right, which explains everything from Babes in Arms to Little Abner to um, Wonderful Town, you know, these shows that just are uh, typical of what the audience came to and they just wanted to sit back and have a wonderful time. And I've always been interested in doing show, doing a show each season that has some serious intentions of one sort or another, either political or emotional. We did Golden Boy. We were uh, um, committed to doing shows that are dramas when we can. Um, and it's always fun to explore some atypical musical aspect of Broadway. That would include something like Pearly, which was really written for you know Fender Electric Bass and uh, a kind of uh, – gospel beat underneath it and a lot of gospel piano in it, something that's just different. And when you match those three shows together in a way that you think is satisfying, you then hope for the best. Well, since since you, you just mentioned it, all of that, you're talking about the bass, I want to jump back. We've been talking all about uh, your work at Encores, but you have this fascinating history from starting as a musician in in rock music to critic at the Los Angeles Herald-Examiner, to creative director of Jujamson Theaters and, of course, now Encores. How did you make that journey? I always say to people it's like falling off a roof and not getting hurt. I have no idea how I made the journey. Um, um, my life in, in, in music as a, as a player was very limited and I really put it in my bio really to amuse myself more than anything else. <laughs> it was uh, brief and undistinguished, I would say. Uh, I became a theater critic because someone offered me a job as a theater critic. I was living in Los Angeles at the time. Initially, I wrote for a, for a free newspaper called The Reader, which is still very popular in some cities, San Diego and Chicago, no longer in business in uh, Los Angeles. In fact, I have a history of putting things out of business in Los Angeles. Uh, and after a few years of doing that once a week because uh, it was a weekly, um, the Herald Examiner called me. That was the afternoon paper in Los Angeles, the Hearst paper, which was in competition with the Los Angeles Times. Uh, I became the theater critic for them and did that for four or five years and eventually they made me the arts editor and I realized in a blinding moment of inspiration that I was climbing up the wrong ladder. I really was not interested in journalism and had never been interested in journalism. I was a theater critic because I was interested in the theater. So I had to get myself hired away from journalism and into the theater which I somehow managed to do. I'm not quite sure how. Um, but it has not exactly been one of those career plans that you know they try to teach you in college. It's just sort of been saying yes to opportunities. But you went directly from being the critic to working at Judy Amson? No, I actually went to work at the Mark Taper Forum, which is the, the large uh, institutional theater in, in Los Angeles, sort of the equivalent of Lincoln Center Theater Group or the public in New York. And then from there? From there to Jujamson. Um, and I got hired by Jujamson in an extremely roundabout way. Uh, which I'll be brief about, but uh, Rocco Landisman took over Jujamson Theaters in the summer of 1987 and called me on the phone. I was working at the Mark Taper to ask me if I'd like to come work for him and I said, I don't think so, but why would you even ask me? Uh, I'm very happy where I am, working for Gordon Davidson, who I admire. And he said, well, when you were a critic for the Herald Examiner, uh, the first show that I produced, which was Big River, was trying out 
in Southern California, and you wrote a really terrible review of it. Um, but it was a pretty smart, terrible review, and I <laughs> need somebody here who can help me, uh, you know, create shows for Jujamson's theaters. So uh, I'm probably the only person in a long time who's been hired into the theater business by panning a show. So how does it feel now when shows that you put on at Jujamson may be panned or criticized as a former critic yourself? Well, I'd like to say that um, it, it's uh, unforgivable and that no one should be a theater critic and that it's a criminal <laughs> act. But the truth is uh, I was a critic and I understand that side of it. And as personally hurt as one gets by bad reviews and it is like getting – like being hit with a stomach flu when you get terrible reviews. Uh, I understand that that's the job. I always hope that the job will be done well. Um, I frequently, well, or often find myself agreeing at some level or other with even the bad reviews uh, and always with the good reviews. <laughs> and, you know, life goes on. They have a job to do and we have a job to do. And so tell us what it means to be the creative director at Jujamson. What is that role now? Well, when Jujamson, when Rocco took over Jujamson in 1987, it was a very bad time for the Broadway theater. Most of the th Jujamson theaters were empty. There were five of them. And theaters all over Broadway were empty. And my job as creative director was to create shows either by uh, making partnerships with not-for-profit theaters around the country that had material that looked interesting to us um, or even by completely creating something out of whole cloth, which we did with Smokey Joe's Cafe and The Secret Garden or by partnering with producers who had projects that they needed help getting off the ground. Um, uh, Jelly's Last Jam would be a, an example of that kind of project. Um, as the theater has gotten more successful and uh, financially successful and the theaters tend to be booked and shows run longer and longer, um, a lot more of the work has become a sort of handicapping process where you're choosing among things that would want to come into your theater, um, which is fun but less interesting in a way and I still like the process, the full process better, which is to see a script and become enthusiastic about it or have an idea and commission someone to write a script and then – um, take it all the way to an opening night. And and one last facet, and you have in fact written the book for a musical, which has had an off-Broadway production and had a regional production a number of years earlier. So you've really played on all sides of this. Yeah, it's been great fun. I mean, I must say, I was, my brother, who's also a producer, and I uh, are partners frequently, and I was saying to him recently, the really great thing about this business is, even when it's no fun, it's fun. Even when you're in trouble, it's fun. Um, when we did Smokey Joe's Cafe, which had so many problems being born uh, and we were in Chicago uh, tr trying the show out, the two of us were there for the, the whole two or three weeks that we were getting it open and it was a nightmare. It was that nightmare that you read about and, or you know, that you see movies about where they're in trouble on the road and uh, looking back on it, it seems like it was all fun. I'm sure lots of it was not particularly fun and there were sleepless nights but it's – you know, it's exciting. Well, Jack, um, I will be certainly in my favorite two seats at City Center on February 10th when A Tree Grows in Brooklyn opens for its four-day, five-performance run. Then in March, March 31st through April 3rd, Pearly runs, and then The Apple Tree in May, May 12th through 16th. I know that there are seats still available, so people coming from out of town can see encores. Absolutely. And the, I guess, roughly 10,000 people that see it uh, on subscription, probably more than that, uh, will be flocking to the theater again. We look forward to seeing every one of them. Well, Jack Viertel, thank you so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you. 
For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding everyone that these programs, as well as all of the media and educational programs of the American Theatre Wing, can be accessed as free on-demand audio and video from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you.